The name of this podcast is called Read a Book. And the book we are reading is called The War on Kids, How American Juvenile Justice Lost Its Way by Kara H. Drennan. Chapter 3, Legal and Policy Paths to Juvenile Incarceration. At 17, Andre Lyle and a high school classmate in Des Moines, Iowa, fought over a bag of marijuana. During the fight, Andre punched his schoolmate and seized the bag for which Andre had paid $5 one day earlier. As a result of the altercation, Andre was charged with and convicted of second-degree burglary, a sentence to 25 years in prison, seven of which he was required to serve before he was eligible for parole. In 2014, the Iowa Supreme Court held that mandatory minimums like the one that sent Andre away have no legitimate application to children and that juvenile sentences must be tailored to the individual case. Iowa, though, is the only state in the union that has taken such a position, and mandatory minimums are the norm nationwide. Equally common in this nation today are punitive school policies that render even even offenses that we think of as inane juvenile schoolyard conduct the basis for serious criminal charges. This chapter explains that if some socio-demographic factors make crimes one destiny, certain policies and laws make the destiny a reality. Specifically, this chapter identifies four fault lines and exposes children to criminal justice system and its harsh, often life-altering consequences. One, the school-to-prison pipeline. Two, transfer laws that remove youth from juveniles' court jurisdiction, often without judicial oversight. Three, ineffective assistance of counsel for juveniles accused of crime. And four, the use of generally applicable mandatory minimums to sentence juveniles. Chapter three demonstrates the sobering fact that a juvenile's first interaction with the law, whether legitimate or permanent, may seal his or her their fate as a criminal. The name of this podcast is called Read a Book. And the book we are reading is called The War on Kids, How American Juvenile Justice Lost Its Way by Kara H. Drennan from Chapter 3, Section A, School to Prison Pipeline. On October 26, 2015, at Spring Valley High School in Columbia, South Carolina, what should have been a typical if frustrating exchange between an adolescent student and a teacher turned into a violent assault by police officer Ben Fields on that 16-year-old student. According to eyewitness accounts, the young female student had her cell phone out in the classroom, and the teacher told her to put it away. The student refused the teacher's instruction, and she also refused an an administration direction to come to the office. Officer Fields was then called into the classroom, and after she refused the officer's order to leave the room, Fields tipped the girl's chair and desk backwards, lifting her out of her seat and slamming her to the floor, and then dragged her to the front of the classroom where he cuffed her hands behind her back. A classmate recorded the episode on her cell phone and the video went viral, prompting school officials and sheriff departments were representative to decree the incident. The, the county sheriff said the video makes you sick to your stomach, and the superintendent's statement reported that the school district was deeply concerned about the incident. The officer involved in the episode was ultimately fired, and the Department of Justice launched a civil rights investigation. But the practices that enabled the Spring Valley incident are an endemic to modern American public education, and they often inflict more lasting harm on kids than the physical assault documented in the viral video. In fact, the practices that enabled the Spring Valley High School assault 
epitomized the social scientists call the school to prison pipeline, a metaphor to describe the concept that excessive school punishment, rigid security, and the neglect of students' needs can increase the chance, chances that youth go to prison. This subsection of the chapter explains those practices, why they are so prevalent today and the long-term damage they do to children. As was discussed at the outset of the book, politicians of the late 20th century ushered in a series of tough-on-crime policies, the most significant of which was the war on drugs. This shift in politics and practice trickled down to the level of school discipline too. The concept of police in schools or school resource officers was first explored in the 1950s in Michigan in an effort to promote positive interaction between police and students. At that time, there were fewer than 100 police officers in schools. But high rates of community and cr school crime in the late 1980s and early 1990s, as well as the later debunked theory of the juvenile super predator, generated a web of drunken school discipline and security protocols that remain in place today. In the 1990s, schools across the country began to introduce security measures that had been historically reserved for criminal justice efforts. Surveillance cameras, metal detectors, drug sniffing dogs, drug testing, and locked doors and gates became part of the public school experience. The National Center for Education reports that in the 2009-2010 school year, 60% of public high schools employed random searches with drug-detecting dogs, and 84% of public high schools relied upon electronic surveillance cameras. In addition, nearly 70% of students surveyed between 12 and 18 years of age reported a security guard or police officer at their school. The most visible element of this trend is the presence of security personnel within school buildings. A recent Department of Education survey found that 43% of public schools rely upon security staff, while 28% have sworn law enforcement officers routinely carrying a firearm. While SROs were initially introduced to promote good relations between students and law enforcement, in the wake of the 1999 Columbine shooting, the dynamic changed. The SRO model involved to keep students safe from dangerous criminals, and the federal government invested heavily in the practice. Between 1999 and 2005, the Department of Justice Office of Community-Oriented Policing, Policing Services poured over $750 million into more than 3,000 law enforcement agencies, resulting in more than 6,500 newly hired school resource officers. Similar programs exist at the state and local level. The New York Times reported in 2009 that there were over 17,000 sworn officers in public schools that year. The National Association of School Resource Officers estimates that today there are between 14,000 and 20,000 officers in schools nationwide. School resource officers are currently the fastest growing segment of law enforcement. The name of this podcast is called Read a Book, and the book we are reading is called The War on Kids, How American Juvenile Justice Lost Its Way by Kara H. Drennan, continuing School to Prison Pipeline from Chapter 3. At the same time that schools have increased security measures and relied upon law enforcement, they have also adopted zero-tolerance policies for what many consider to be normal age-appropriate behavior from children. These policies were first adopted as a part of the war on drugs in the 1990s as schools struggled to keep drugs out of schools. Over time, though, the zero-tolerance philosophy was embraced as a more widely applicable approach to school discipline. 
These policies mandate the application of predetermined consequences, most often severe and punitive in nature, that are intended to be applied regardless of the gravity of behavior, mitigation circumstances, or situational context. The goal of such policies, as explained by James Allen Fox, a professor of criminology at North Northeastern University, is twofold. Deal with the small stuff so they don't get to the big stuff, and send a strong message of deterrence. With this combination of zero tolerance rules and overseas in schools, discipline too often has morphed into law enforcement. For example, fist fights were once thought of as an unfortunate but expected part of growing up, and they may have been dealt with in the past by a principal or other administrator meeting and discretionary punishment in school. Today, fist fights regularly result in suspension and arrest. In the 2006-2007 school year, officers arrested 3,500 students across 11 Texas school districts, but only 20% of those incidents were violent or involved a weapon, and usually the weapon was a fist. In St. Paul, Minnesota, a high school student believed to be trespassing was arrested for listening to music during class and refused to obey an officer's instruction to leave the classroom. The officer used mace on the student during the arrest. In Jefferson Parish, Louisiana, a 15-year-old was charged with battery for throwing Skittles candy at another student on the bus. In Jackson, Mississippi, kids are regularly arrested for minor infractions like walking in the highway during class and fighting in the school cafeteria. Mainstream media are replete with stories of age-appropriate behavior in school being treated as a law enforcement matter, and in part of this, and in part, and in part, this is due to the mere presence of SROs. As Emily Owens, a criminology professor at the University of Pennsylvania, explained, "Of course, having an officer means that there will be increased likelihood that law enforcement is involved in what would otherwise be a disciplinary event." Perhaps the most damaging feature of the zero tolerance approach to discipline is its reliance on exclusionary punishment, removing the student from his or her peers, whether though whether through in school suspension, suspension or expulsion. Just as the American reliance on incarceration has exploded in recent decades, so too has its reliance on probation and suspension of students. There is some geographic disparity in the use of suspensions. Florida, which suspended nearly 20% of secondary students in recent years, has the highest suspension rate, followed closely by Mississippi and Delaware. But the practice is common across the nation and across all age groups. In the 2011-2012 school year, nearly 3.5 million children were suspended at least once, costing students nearly 18 million days of classroom instruction. Surprisingly, even preschoolers are subject to expulsion and suspension. According to federal data for the 2011-2012 school year, more than 8,000 public preschoolers were suspended at least once, a figure that U.S. Secretary of Education on Duncan called mind-boggling. Today, schools suspend and expel students at more than double the rate for such actions in 1974, despite a nationwide decline in school violence and crime. In 2009, the issue of zero tolerance discipline and security came before the United States Supreme Court in Safford United Schools District v. Reading. The state was based on the following facts. In October 2003, the assistant principal of the Safford Middle School came to Savannah Reading's math class and asked her to come to the office. Once in the office, the assistant principal reported that one of Savannah's classmates had accused her of giving prescription strength medicine a medication banned without advance permission to a fellow student. Savannah denied knowing about the pills and giving them to another student. She offered to let the assistant principal search her belongings, which he did. 
After finding nothing incriminating, Savannah was sent to the school nurse office where she was ultimately strip searched. No drugs were found on her, and because of her fear and humiliation, her parents sued the school district.